I'm pleased to announce our next speaker, Matthew Bowen. He's an assistant professor of religious education at Brigham Young University, Hawaii, where he's taught since 2012. He holds a PhD in biblical studies from the Catholic University of America in Washington, DC, where he also earned an MA in biblical studies. Previously earned a BA in English with a minor in classical studies from Brigham Young University, Provo, and pursued post-baccalaureate studies in Semitic languages, Egyptian and Latin. Matt has taught at Brigham Young University, Hawaii, at the Catholic University of America, and at Brigham Young University. He is the author of numerous peer-reviewed articles on scripture and temple-related topics, and two forthcoming books on scriptural onomastics. Matthew grew up in Orem, Utah, and served a two-year mission in the California Roosevelt Mission, where he served in my stake, so he's okay with me. He and his wife, Suzanne, are the parents of three children, Zachariah, Nathan, and Adele. And with that, we'd like to welcome Matthew Bowen. I want to thank Scott for the invitation to come and speak to you today, and want to thank everybody who volunteers with, with FAIR. I'm grateful for everybody's efforts. Uh, brothers and sisters, aloha. I want to begin, my, uh, begin this presentation with a brief explanation of the pun in its title. The adjective Semitic ultimately derives from the name Shem, Hebrew Shem. The, ter the Hebrew term for name, Shem, is identical. In Genesis 9.26, Noah invokes the blessing of Yahweh by the name title Yahweh God of Shem, which one might also render Yahweh God of name or Yahweh, God of renown. Within the context, we've heard a lot about that today, within the context of Genesis and biblical Hebrew narrative as a whole, where names dominate as symbols and signals within the biblical narrative, God of Shem, or God of name, constitutes an appropriate divine title. As an English adjective, Semitic refers to a family of languages and cultures of which the Hebrew language and ancient Israelite culture constitute a branch. The term semiotics derives from the similar sounding Greek word semeon, a sign. Semiotics is the study of how meaning is made and conveyed or signified in language, literature, and so forth. Names as signals or signs communicated much more in terms of meaning anciently than they often do today. As Michael Patrick O'Connor has noted, Semitic names are often linguistically transparent, i.e., meaningful as ordinary words or compounds of them, in the language of, in the language of their hearers. In other words, names in, ancient, in the ancient Israelite onomasticon often meant something to ancient Israelites in the Hebrew language or in languages, of or in languages of neighboring cultures with which at least some members of their society, like scribes, were familiar with. We've got Egyptian names like Phineas and Hophni, Pashkur, um, Miriam, and so forth, which show up in the Onomasticon. With the exception of a few linguistically transparent personal names like Rose, Lily, and other flower names, Sunny, Hope, Charity, and so forth, English names tend to overwhelmingly to be linguistically opaque 
In this paper, I wish to demonstrate that one important aspect of understanding the content and function of scriptural narrative is recognizing contact points between names and their etymological or etiological meanings. And by etiological, I, I mean a, a story of origin or explanation of how something came to be. So we want to look at how these names and etymological or etiological meanings function within individual biographies and narratives. This is indisputably true of biblical Hebrew narrative, but I also wish to present some examples of where it appears to be true of Book of Mormon biography and narrative and of certain inspired textual restorations belonging to the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis. And I want to look specifically at gen names from Genesis that show up in Restoration Scripture. In this paper, I will not attempt to describe or account for a pre-Israelite origin for the Genesis names and stories discussed herein. I wish us, rather, to attempt to understand how these stories and names, to understand these stories and names as would an ancient Israelite audience, and the original literary and implied audience of the Hebrew Bible. Moreover, in discussing these names in their narrative, and in some cases Book of Mormon narrative context, I assume that the, the Book of Mormon constitutes a work of translation literature as it claims, rather than 19th century frontier fiction as some summarily dismiss it. I also proceed from the standpoint that the Book of Mormon writers knew and used the languages that they said they knew and used, namely Hebrew and Egyptian, and that the names in their onomasticon and their perceived meanings were linguistically transparent and literally, liter, literarily useful within the bounds of the ancient Israelite scriptural tradition of which these authors constitute a part. Adam of the ground and Eve the life giver. The first mention of humanity in Genesis emphasizes the collective creation of human beings, Hebrew ha-adam, in the divine image, the mut, Genesis 1.27. The narrative emphasizes the same point in Genesis 5.2, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam, humanity, in the day that they were created. The intervening Creation fall narrative, Genesis 2, 3 through 3, 24, however, emphasizes the connection between Adam, humanity, and the ground, and between Eve, Chava, life giver, and life. At first there was not a man, Adam, to till the ground, Ha'adama, Genesis 2, 5, but there went up a mist or stream from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground, Ha'adama. Then the narrator states, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, formed the man, Ha'adam, of the dust of the ground, Ha'adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, Nishmat Chaim. And man, Ha'adam, became a living soul, Nefesh Chaya, Genesis 2.7. Even in the creation of Adam from the Adama, the narrative already hints at the name Eve, Chava, in the repetition of the root Chavi, or Chayi, living, life. The succeeding verses similarly anticipate 
the advent of Eve with the Lord God planting a garden eastward in Eden where he put the man, Ha'adam, whom he had formed, and then out of the ground, Ha'adamah, making to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, with the tree of life, eight Chachayim, also in the midst of the garden, and the knowledge of the tree of knowledge and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After after the woman, still heretofore unnamed within the narrative, gives her husband some of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Yahweh Elohim declares the consequences of transgression. First comes the decreed punishment for the serpent who initially tempted the woman. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Literally every living creature, chayat. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust, dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life, chayecha. The serpent who had been more subtle, arum, or e even more naked, um, than any chayat, living creature, would now be more cursed. Eating the, eating the ground whence Adam was taken. In a similar vein, the decreed consequences for Adam and Eve play on the name Adam and, and anticipate the name Eve. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed be the ground, ha'adamah, for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life, chayecha. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till, till thou return unto the ground, ha'adamah. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The cursing of the ground, Ha'adamah, becomes a running theme in the primeval history. The second instance, this second instance of the phrase, all the days of thy life, kol yamei hayecha, particularly anticipates the giving of the name Eve, Chava, life giver, and the appositional phrase, mother of all living, which I'll talk more about in a second. Though Adam will eat in sorrow, Eve, Adam, though Adam will eat in sorrow, Adam's life cannot m merely amount to sorrow. In the context of all the foregoing, the narrative finally proffers the name, which until this point it has proleptically withheld. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, Chava, because she was the mo mother of all living. Aim Chol Chai. The Gen Joseph Smith Genesis. Version adds, for, for thus have I called the Lord, I the Lord God called the first of all women, which are many. The phrase mother of all living, aim kol chai, offers an explanation for the form chava, which firmly ties Eve and her name to forms of the root for life. Chavi or chayi or chaya, reiterated throughout the narrative. The creation fall narrative then concludes with additional wordplay on Adam in terms of Adamah, ground, and, in, and on Eve in terms of life and living. Genesis, Genesis 3, 21 through 24. Unto Adam, 
And also to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man, Ha'adam, has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, eats hachaim, and eat and live forever. Therefore the, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground, Ha'adam, Ha'adama, from whence he was taken. And so he drove out the man, Ha'adam, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden, Cherubim and a flaming sword which tr- turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Eitz Hachayim. The Joseph Smith Genesis account, book of Moses account, Yahweh Elohim adds weight to the decreed consequence, thou shalt surely die with the presence of the ancient oath formula. The Lord swears by his own life, for even as I, the Lord God, liveth, chai, God's life is, of course, the very definition of eternal life. Moses 5 records that after the expulsion from the garden, Adam began to till the earth. Ha'adama. And Eve, also his wife, did labor with him. Their children, too, began to divide two and two in the land and to till the land, i.e., the Ha'adama. This more extensive narrative also records, and in that day Adam blessed God and was filled and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth. Elsewhere in Genesis, that's Mishpot Ha'adama, saying, Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression my eyes are opened, and in this life, Hebrew, Chaim, I shall have joy, and in the, again in the flesh I shall see God. And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was, and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed, and never should have known the joy, never known good and evil, and the joy of our redemption. The eternal life, remember the phrase, Chai la'olam, live forever, which God giveth to all, unto all the obedient. In this text, restoration, the phrase families of the earth, a collocation which I mentioned a minute ago, is elsewhere rendered Mishpot um, Ha'adama in Genesis, plays on the name Adam, humanity. Thus Adam who was taken from the ground will become the father and patriarch of all the families or clans that live on the, gra- on the ground. Because Because of his wife Eve and her power to give life, however, Adam's life will not merely consist of eating bread and sorrow. Eve's words, moreover, directly play on the idea of life-giving and expand it to include not only mortal life, but eternal life and living forever. The living forever mentioned in Genesis 3.22 in its truest sense. The name Adam thus becomes a symbol of fatherhood over all the families of the earth, while Eve's name becomes a symbol of both her motherhood and matriarchy over humanity's mortal life, but also humanity's eternal life. In other words, Eve, in a true sense, opened the way for mortal life and thus becomes matriarch or life-giver of of eternal life. The Greek Septuagint names her as Zoe. That's a, a root that we most of us recognize as relating to life. And her name thus constitutes a type of Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls not just a second Adam, 
but a life-making spirit, a pneuma, a pneuma zoopoion. The Joseph Smith, let's see. The Joseph Smith Genesis slash Book of Moses account thus attests an even wider narratological view of the names Adam and Eve in terms of the ground and earth and life than does the canonical Genesis text in its present form. In the restored narrative, the name Adam becomes an emotive symbol of more than just ground and dust, whether the mortal body is destined to return, but a symbol of fatherhood over all the families of the earth or ground. And similarly, Eve's, Eve becomes more than a symbol of motherhood and mortal life-giving, but also of eternal matriarchy and mother of eternal lives. Following the account of the creation in the fall, the Genesis narrative describes how the consequences of the fall play out in the lives of Adam and Eve's posterity. The first child that Genesis, the Genesis narrative names is Cain, for whom it offers an ideological explanation, a story of origin in terms of the Semitic Hebrew verb kani or kana, to get, acquire, create, or even procreate. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten, Cain, Kaniti, I have gotten, Kaniti, a man from the Lord. The initial etiology is positive. Eve got, acquired, or procreated Cain with Yahweh's help. We should note here that, J, that JST Genesis preserves the detail that Satan had quickly led Adam and Eve's older posterity astray. Hence, JST's longer explanation of the name Cain in terms of Cain and Cana clearly expresses the parental expectation that because Cain was gotten or gained or created with Yahweh's help through continuous special pleading, Adam and his wife, Adam and Eve, his wife, ceased not to call upon God. He would be of such spiritual make. as to not reject the Lord like his older siblings. Wherefore, he may not reject his words. Nevertheless, even though Cain was gotten or acquired from the Lord, yet he re rejected him in his words, even after the latter revealed himself, as, we, as Moses 6, verse 3 hints. Then the JST version of Genesis, or Book of Moses, narrative preserves a part of the etiology that the present-day biblical account does not. The name Cain itself becomes a part of the explanation of the origin of secret combinations. The narrative ties the name Cain to getting or acquiring in a much more sinister way. Having been warned against defecting unto perdition, a term which means total loss or ruin, an antonym of gain, Cain conspires with Satan and murders Abel. And Cain said, truly I am Mahan, the master of this great secret that I may murder and get gain. Wherefore, Cain was called Master Mahan, and he gloried in his wickedness. Here, in chilling fashion, Cain inverts the positive symbol of, of his name, gotten or acquired, into a distinctly negative symbol a symbol of secret combinations for, and murder for gain. Um, 
namely organized evil with the modus operandi of murder for profit. The gain that Cain has in view, of course, is Abel's flocks. Hugh Nibley has observed that all the oldest words for money simply mean flocks. Our words fee and pecuniary mean flocks. One of the most important terms, Hebrew terms for cattle, mikneh, derives from kani or kana, to get or acquire, the same verbal root under discussion here. The narrative repeats the Cain gain wordplay near the end of the pericope as Cain's oath-bound secret combination perpetuates in subsequent generations. For Lamech, having entered into a covenant with Satan after the manner of Cain, wherein he became Master Mahan, Master, Mahan, master of that great secret which was administered unto Cain by Satan. And Irad, the son of Enoch, having known their secret, began to reveal it unto the sons of Adam. Wherefore, Lamech, being angry, slew him, not like unto Cain, for his, his brother Abel, for the sake of getting gain, but he slew him for the oath's sake. Uh, as Noel B. Reynolds has observed, the, the writers and compilers of the Book of Mormon had access to fuller versions of the Genesis narrative on the plates of brass. Mormon and Moroni's incorporation of wordplay on the name Cain in terms of Semitic, Kani, or Kana, just as we find in Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis, dramatically supports that thesis. In Helaman 6, Mormon describes how secret combinations began to overspread Nephite society. He ties these secret combinations to Cain and the initial plot with Satan via wordplay, very similar to what we see in Moses 5.31. They, the Nephites, began to seek to get gain that they might be lifted up above one another. Therefore, they began to commit secret murders and to rob and plunder that they might get gain. Who was the source of their secret crimes? Yea, that same being who did plot with Cain, that if he would murder his brother Abel, it should not be known unto the world. And he did plot with Cain and his followers from that time forth. One of the Book of Mormon's, one of Mormon's, sorry, one of Mormon's stated literary aims was to show that at the end of this book, and he meant the Book of Nephi, from which he took his abridged account, that kinetic, kinetic secret combinations did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. Helaman 2, 13 through 14. Mormon's personal account of his own life and times includes secret combinations as a major contributing factor in his people's downfall. Moroni, having seen the final destruction of his people and left to finish his father's work, records that kinetic secret combinations destroyed the Jaredites. Mormon had, had intended to tell us this story, as we learn in Mosiah 28.17. In his abridged book of Ether, Moroni writes, And it came to pass that they did agree with Akish, and Akish did administer them to them the oaths which were given by them of old who sought power, which had been handed down even from Cain, who was a murderer from the beginning. And they were kept by the, up by the power of the devil to administer these oaths unto the people, to keep them in darkness, to help such as sought power to gain power, and to murder, and to plunder, and to lie, and to commit all manner of wickedness and whoredoms. The prophetic 
power of Cain's name as a symbol of getting unrighteous gain further emerges in subsequent verses as Moroni draws out the implications of the Jaredite secret combinations for his Latter-day Gentile audience. Moroni uses Gentile Jaredites as a prototype for the Gentiles of the, of the Latter-day who would inherit the Promised Land. And they, namely the secret combinations, have caused the destruction of this people of whom I am now speaking, and also the destruction of the people of Nephi. And whosoever shall uphold such secret combinations to get power and gain until they overspread the nation, behold, they shall be destroyed. For the Lord will not suffer the... the and here he starts to paraphrase Genesis 4, the Canaan Abel story. He shall not suffer that the blood of the, his saints, which shall be shed by them, shall always cry unto him from the ground for vengeance upon them. And yet he avenged them not. Wherefore, O ye Gentiles, it is wisdom in God that these things should come unto you, that thereby ye may repent of your sins, and suffer not that these murderous combinations shall get above you, which shall are built up to get power and gain. Um, for Mormon and Moroni, the destruction of the Nephites and Jaredites constituted two prophetic witnesses, an, an Israelite witness and a Gentile witness, that secret combinations to get gain will overpower and overspread and destroy any nation that upholds them. And for them, the symbol of that threat was the name of the first human to murder with Satan to get gain, Cain. Thus the name Cain remains relevant as a prophetic witness and a warning to Israelites and Gentiles alike against passively permitting or engaging in secret murder for gain. Noah, rest and comfort, good and bad. The name Noah connoted divine rest to the Israelite ear. Throughout the biblical narratives, Noah interplays with forms of the root Noah and the unrelated but somewhat homonymous root Naham to console, comfort, be sorry, regret. The Genesis narrative explains that the patriarch Lamech named his son Noah, divine rest, as follows. And he called his name Noah, saying, this son shall comfort us, Yenachemenu, concerning our work and toil of our hands, because of the ground, Ha'adamah, which the Lord has, hath cursed. Although Lamech's statement ideologizes Noah in terms, of some, in, in terms of the somewhat homonymous root, Naham, comfort, it expresses the notion of rest through antonyms, work, toil. In the biblical narrative, the, the wordplay moves from comfort into a, a direct interplay of the roots Naham and Noah, the Lord's regretting, Wayinachem, Nehamti, over having created humanity, the ark coming to rest, Watanach, Genesis 8.4, and the dove's attempt to find rest, Manoah, Genesis 8.9, and the sweet savor, Reach, Hanihoa, of the sacrifice that appeased the Lord after the flood. As I've noted elsewhere, one of the most interesting restorative aspects of the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis is its dramatic expansion of the flood narrative, which begins in the vision of Enoch, Moses 7. The wordplay begins with a foreecho of Noah, 
of the Noah Naham ideology from Genesis 5.29 and the phrase, the sun shall comfort us. And Enoch also saw Noah and his family and the posterity of all the sons of Noah should be saved with a temporal salvation. Wherefore Enoch saw that Noah built an ark and that the Lord smiled upon it and held it in his own hand. But upon the residue of the wicked, the floods came and swallowed them up. And as Enoch saw this, he had bitterness of soul and wept over his brethren. And he said unto the heavens, I will refuse to be comforted. But the Lord said unto Enoch, Lift up your heart and be glad and look. And it came to pass that Enoch looked, and from Noah he beheld all the families of the earth. Remember that phrase, Mishpot Ha'adama. And he cried unto the Lord, saying, When shall the day of the Lord come? When shall the blood of the righteous be shed, that all they that mourn may be sanctified and have eternal life? Enoch's declaration, I refuse to be comforted. Hebrew to be comforted, Lahitnachem or Hinachem, is the immediate narrative in the immediate narrative context plays on the name Noah and anticipates Noah's role in comforting his ancestors. But it also speaks to the Lord's immediate efforts to console Enoch concerning those who would die in the flood. Namely the Lord's showing him the arc of showing him the arc of history. The Lord's strategy to comfort Enoch not only involves showing him Noah rest, but also Noah's posterity, including the Messiah. The Messiah would come through Noah's and thus Enoch's line. The Lord said, blessed is he through whose seed Messiah shall come. Notably too, Enoch's words allude back to Moses 5, 10 through 11, and Adam's prophecy concerning all the families of the earth, and Eve's words about eternal life, as well as Adam's and Eve's mourning over their posterity. As Enoch and Noah and his posterity, including the Messiah, as, or sorry, as Enoch sees Noah and his posterity, including the Messiah, the when of the earth's rest becomes an all-consuming question. Terry Zink has pointed out that the term rest functions as a wordplay on the name Noah throughout Moses 7. And I've attempted to show how the wordplay, that narrative wordplay is even more extensive. Enoch first hears the earth, the Adama, once Adam was taken, ask regarding her rest. And it came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth and heard a voice from the bowels thereof saying, Woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained, I am weary because of the filthiness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my creator sanctify me that I may rest and righteousness abide upon my face, righteousness for a season abide upon my face? The Lord's promise that the Messiah would come through Noah's and thus his own posterity is not enough to comfort Enoch, and the earth's question, regard, and the earth's question becomes his own. And it, shall, and it came to pass that Enoch cried unto the Lord, saying, When the Son of Man cometh in the flesh, shall the earth rest? I pray thee, show, the, show me these things. Enoch then sees the Messiah, the Son of Man, crucified. He again hears a voice, sees the heavens veiled, and hears the earth groan. Hebrew, Anach. 
Enoch then witnesses the resurrected righteous come forth and stand at the right hand of God while the wicked remained in spirit prison. Still this does not comfort Enoch. And again Enoch wept and cried unto the Lord, saying, When shall the earth rest? Enoch then receives promises from the Lord concerning his eventual second coming and a promise of the earth's rest. And the day shall come that the earth shall rest. But before that day, the heavens shall be darkened, and a veil of darkness shall cover the earth, and the heavens shall shake, and also the earth, and great tribulation shall be among the children of men. But my people I will preserve. The Lord also promises Enoch that his Zion will come again, and that the earth shall rest. And there shall be mine abode, and it shall be Zion, which shall come forth out of all the creations which I have made. And for the space of a thousand years, the earth shall rest." While the further, fuller, restored Enoch Noah flood narrative makes the name Noah a symbol of the divine comfort of Enoch and, his, and the patriarchs and the prophetic symbol of the earth's eventual rest, Mormon's narrative of the history of the people of Zenith describes King Noah and his priests as the moral obverse of the biblical Noah, but also playing on, the, on the, that name in terms of Noah and Naham. In Mormon's and his sources' account of King Noah's reign, King Rest causes the people to labor exceedingly to support iniquity. And he causes his workmen to work all manner of work within the walls of his palace temple. Meanwhile, his court priests lays about on an ornate breastwork built so that they might rest, perhaps Wayanihu, their bodies and arms while, while they should speak lying and vain words to the people. That neither Noah nor his priests understood what should have been their role in achieving Isaiah's prophetic promise, the Lord hath comforted Nicham, his people, is evidenced by Noah's priest's quotation of that very scripture. In Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, in Mosiah 12, 20 through 23, in an attempt to entrap Abinadi, King Noah's method of administering comfort to his people, oh sorry, King Noah's method of administering comfort to his people came through his large-scale winemaking, Mosiah 11:15, which also inverts the Genesis image of Noah's winemaking, Genesis 9. Later, Alma plays on the name Noah when he states his reasons for foregoing kingship among his people. But remember the iniquity of King Noah and his priests, and I myself was caught in a snare, and did many things which were abominable in the sight of the Lord, which caused me sore repentance. King Mosiah II, using Alma's own thoughts, argues for the Nephite abandonment of monarchy with these words, Yea, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, what great destruction did come upon them, and also because of their iniquities, they were brought into bondage. And were it not for the interposition of their all-wise creator, and this because of their sincere repentance, that sincere regret, they must unavoidably remain in bondage till now. I deem it no incidental narrative detail that the... That the That the com that I, I deem it no incidental narrative detail that Alma founded his church on a different kind of comfort than that offered by King Noah and his priests. 
The baptismal covenant of Alma's church required being willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things. Not long after making this covenant, Alma and his people were brought into to bondage uh, according to Abinadi's prophecy regarding Noah's then unrepentant people. Alma's people would become the witnesses that they had covenanted to be become by the Lord's comforting them in his way rather than King Noah's. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their affliction, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort, for I know of the covenant which ye have made unto me, and I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage, and I will also ease the burdens which are upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you are in bondage. And this will, I will do, that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter, and that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord, God do visit my people in their afflictions. As Alma's people prove true and faithful to their covenant obligations, the Lord fulfills his. And it came to pass that so great was their faith and their patience that the voice of the Lord came again unto them, saying, Be of good comfort, for on the morrow I will deliver you out of bondage. For the Nephites, the name Noah became a symbol not only of negative rest and comfort, but the contrastive rest and comfort that the Lord offers his people. All right. Another really interesting name, Jacob. Talk about Jacob and Enos. Following the, the, the primeval history, the ensuing patriarchal narratives in Genesis make the names Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, and Jacob symbol, symbolic focal points. Avram, father is exalted, or exalted father becomes Avraham, father of a multitude, even an Avhamon Goyim, a father of many nations. His son Isaac's name, may he laugh, becomes a symbol of rejoicing in one's posterity, particularly in the Joseph Smith translation version. Wordplay on the name Ishmael, may he hear, intertwines with wordplay on Isaac and the narratives that, narratives that deal with them. And there's some Book of Mormon uh, connections there that we don't have time to get into. The name Ishmael becomes a symbol of God's willingness to hear and of obedience. The Semitic name Jacob means, may he, the God, protect, or he, the God, will protect, the one so named. Of inestimable, of inestimable importance to ancient Israelites, the name Jacob receives different narratological treatments, negative and positive, in the Genesis narratives. At the birth of Esau and Jacob, the narrative states, and after that came his brother Jacob out and his hand took hold on Esau's hill, and his name was called Jacob, Yaakov. This explanation hints at a future conflict between the brothers. Later, as both brothers grow to maturity, Jacob obtains Esau's birthright and then his birthright blessing by subterfuge. Isaac explains to Esau, Thy brother came with subtly, subtlety, mirma. And I rate Esau then declares, and he said, is, it not rightly, is he not rightly named Jacob, Yaakov, for he hath supplanted me, why Yaakbeni, these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. 
The prophet Jeremiah, a contemporary of Lehi, used this name, used the name Jacob as a pejorative or negative symbol when he criticized the inhabitants of Judah. Take ye heed every one of his neighbor, and trust ye not to, in any brother, for every, every brother will utterly supplant. Akov Yaakov. Jeremiah 9.4. Malachi's prophecies further allude to it using the, the verb kabah. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob, Yaakov, are not consumed. Will a man rob, Hayik ba, God, yet ye have robbed, Kobeim, me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? Kaba'anuka. In tithes and offerings, ye are, ye are cursed, for ye have robbed me, Kobeim, even this whole nation. We see that text included by the Savior in his teachings to the Lamanites and Nephites in Bountiful. In the Book of Mormon, the, the traditional Lamanite charge that Nephi and the Nephites had robbed Laman and the Lamanites might have some reference to the name Jacob as a pejorative symbol of robbing, supplanting, or usurping. But the subsequent Genesis narrative somewhat reverses its pejorative treatment of the name Jacob. The patriarch in the patriarch J Jacob crosses the the Jabbok and undergoes a transformation at Peniel, the face of God, where the narrator states, "And there and there wrestled a man with him, Wayeavek." The hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob receives the new name from Israel, the new name Israel from the man, because as a prince hast thou power, and a better translation here would be thou hast struggled with God, or gods, and with men, and, ha and hast prevailed. Men there is Anashim, and that's important for a reason that I'll mention in a minute. Following his transformation, the narrator makes Jacob a symbol, Jacob's name a symbol of joyful reconciliation and at one moment as his estranged brother Esau embraces him. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. Why, why Habakehu and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Jacob afterwards exclaimed, I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. Remember Peniel, face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. The positive symbolism of Jacob's name emerges in a significant way in Enos's short autobiography on Nephi's small plates. Enos begins with an autobiographical introduction modeled on Nephi's. First we get... I, Enos, knowing my father that he was a just man. The name Enos means man. Look at the... You can see this in the structure of the two texts, the two autobiographical introductions, how close the, the parallelism of the language is there. The name Nephi, as John Gias suggested years ago, means is derived from nefer, and that would mean that it means good. 
Thus we see a, a play on his own name going on in the first verse of the Book of Mormon. We see something similar in Enos's own autobiography. Enos, whose name constitutes a poetic word for man or mankind, as well as the name of a patriarchal ancestor from Genesis, juxtaposes the name with the term rendered man. The parallel language and literary structure significant in themselves serves as a mere beginning to what Enos intends to do. <clears throat> Years ago, John Twetness and Matt Roper noted some of the biographical connections between the patriarch Jacob Enos and the place Peniel. In a subsequent study, I, know, I posited Enos's additional deliberate use of, of onomastic connections, including the wordplay involving the names Jacob, Enos, and Israel. Enos appears to proliferate the wordplay on his known name in his autobiographical introduction into an additional wordplay on the name Jacob, the name of the patriarch for whom his father is named. He does this with the term wrestle, Wayeavek or Beha'aveko, the term used in Genesis to make the name Jacob a symbol of divine wrestling. And I will tell you of the wrestle which I had before God before I re received a remission of my sins. We also note that the, Genesis that the Genesis passage that Enos invokes also employs the word ish, man, a partially homonymous synonym of his own name, and Anashim, men, the plural of his own name. Thus Enos describing his father as a just man and a wrestle before God links himself at once to his ancestor Jacob, his own father Jacob, the divine man or Elohim with whom the patriarch Jacob wrestled, and Esau, Jacob's estranged brother with whom the latter became reconciled through a divine embrace. Um, for, I'm going to cut this short for time, but I do want to, you to note, we see Nephi using Joseph's, the Joseph biography in his own autobiography. The name Joseph, as explained in Genesis 30, 23 through 24, is connected with two roots. One which means to take away or even gather in, asaf, and another verb, yasaf, which means to add or to increase to do something again or continue to do something. Look at, just have a look at a comparison between 2 Nephi 5, 1 through 4 with Genesis 37, 4 through 8 and 20. Joseph's brothers hated him the more. This is, this word plays reiterated. They're worried about Joseph reigning over them or having dominion, literally ruling over them. In fact, in verse 20, they conspire to kill him, let us slay him. Note what Nephi does with this. Behold, it came to pass that I did, Nephi did cry out much unto the Lord because of the anger of my brethren. Behold, their anger did increase, yasaf, against me, insomuch that they did seek to take away my life. Yea, they did murmur against me, saying, Our younger brother thinks to rule over us. And we have had much trial because of him. Wherefore, let us slay him that we may not be afflicted more because of his words. For behold, it will, we will not have him to be our ruler, for it belongs unto us who are the elder brethren to rule over this people. Uh, there are seven other scenes in the Book of Mormon where we, you see this kind of language used. Um, I want to 
show just another instance of this. Um, Nephi uses, well, I'll, I'll skip that. We, we maybe come to that again another time. We've got Benjamin, a name which means son of the right hand, another Genesis name. Uh, how does King Benjamin conclude his address? And now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For this day he hath spiritually begotten you. That's almost a direct paraphrase of Psalm 2.7. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. Then in just a few words later, he says... And it shall come to pass that whosoever doeth this shall be found at the right hand of God, for he shall know the name by which he is called, for he shall be called by the name of Christ. Then he warns against being found on the left hand of God. Another play on his own name. Finally, Nephi plays on the name Judah, a name which means to praise or to give praise out of a feeling of gratitude or thanks when he criticizes Gentile anti-Semitism, probably the strongest example of warning against anti-Semitism that we have in the scriptures. What thank they the Jews for the Bible which they receive of them? Um, this word play occurs in the New Testament as well, but we don't have time to get to that. But I want to, hopefully in a, a future presentation, should I be fortunate to give one, I can discuss the Semitic names in the Book of Mormon that don't occur anywhere in the Bible and how they're used in a similar way. I thank you for your kind attention. We have a few questions here which Brother Bowen will address. All right. <clears throat> As the Lord liveth, Old Testament and Book of Mormon, is this an ancient Semitic oath? Um, you have, it is a, the, the formula that you see used in uh, the Book of Moses is the, the form of the biblical oath formula that we see. And it's used with the, that word high, life, by the life of God. It's God swearing by his own life. You see this with the Pharaoh by the life of Pharaoh, very similar formula. Very, it's also an Egypt. In Egyptian, it shows up in a, a similar grammatic form. It, you have the word "ankh," life, life of the the person, as the form of the oath. Sure. Do you believe that the Translations from the Hebrew to the Septuagint to the Vulgate and so on is a reason that we have lost many of these meanings. Yeah, and in, in fact, um, when a translator renders a word into another language, the translator is pretty much forced to do that with just a single word in most cases, which then restricts, restricts the semantic level of the word from the source language and then imports a whole nother range of meanings from the destination language into which the, 
into which the text is being translated. So you see this with you know, the, the, the term for the law of Moses, Torah, which be, means basically instruction or teaching, comes into Greek as nomos, which brings in the idea of customs, not just law, and then that goes into Latin as lex, and that brings in all of the Roman legal ideas associated with law. So translation is always a, a challenge. I, that's one of the reasons I really appreciated um, Mike's uh, presentation a minute ago. God's always speaking to us and any, almost any way he'll, we'll let him do that. Um, let's see. Could you elaborate on Noel Reynolds' hypothesis about the brass plates containing something related to our book of Moses? Um, yeah, that might be longer than we can get into. If someone wants to talk to me privately about that, I can do that. Um, is there any under, I think Noel's here, so he might be able to talk to you about that too. Is there any understanding uh, that Adam divides into um, Adam, divides also into blood. There, there's definitely a, a, a um, phonological connection that I believe is intentional in the narrative between Adam and blood, Dam or Damim. So I would say, and, and yes, Adam, red. In fact, I've got a paper that um, Interpreter will be publishing shortly that will talk about the Adam Edom connection, Adam Red. Um, what do you think Eve saw? Did she not feel she needed to discuss with her decision, her decision with Adam? This gets into marriage and unilateral decisions that we uh, um, we all deal with in in marriage. Um, I think that that word see is really important beginning in the, in, the, in the garden and fall narrative, but going on into Abraham. Abraham sees. You go to Genesis 22 and the emphasis on he looks up and sees. We're, ta Sorry. It's okay. We're talking about not only, I, I, and I also loved how um, Brother Erickson broke down the dichotomy of physical seeing and spiritual seeing. In, in Hebrew with the verb ra'ah and the verb chazah, there isn't a necess necessarily a distinction there between seeing is seeing. Thank you very yeah, much. thank you. Thanks, Scott. Okay.